We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, a professional counselling service done securely online. Regular listeners of How to Fail will know that I'm a passionate advocate of therapy. Is there something interfering with your happiness or that's preventing you from achieving your goals? For me, when I first went into therapy, it's because I was in a job that made me unhappy. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. There's a broad range of expertise available, which might not be locally available in your area. This service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in one of those uncomfortable waiting rooms again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and even better, financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a more fulfilled life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash HTF. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. There is a special offer for How to Fail listeners where you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash HTF. Thank you so much to BetterHelp. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Annie Nightingale turned 80 in April. But don't let that give you the wrong impression. This is a woman who is forward-looking and future-facing, always on the hunt for the newest sounds in music. As the first female DJ on the BBC, she got the job in 1970, Nightingale was already a pioneer in terms of gender, but she went on to break other moulds too, championing the early music of David Bowie, Ian Drury and Eminem, amongst others. 
She still presents on Radio One, making her the BBC's longest serving presenter and a vital force in British music, a cultural tastemaker who commands the respect of artists, listeners and peers across the world. As recounted in her latest book, Hey, Hi, Hello, it's been a wild ride. Nightingale hung out with the Beatles, Paul McCartney once asked her to marry him as a joke, and has interviewed everyone from Bob Marley to Billie Eilish. She was made a CBE in 2019. This is a woman who has always loved radio. Her earliest memory of it was a Bakelite wireless bought for her by her father. The gift was a prescient one. I was in my own world, and it was just me and the radio, she recalled in 2016. It is an intimacy that she still retains on air. Listening to Nightingale, you feel she is talking directly to you, guiding you through a carefully curated playlist of all the best, most interesting sounds. Radio is, she explains, an authentic and honest medium. It's best to die than tell a lie, she says. I can't tell lies on the radio. My voice would give it away. Annie Nightingale, it is such an honour to have you on How to Fail. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) How was it listening to that introduction? Thank for the praise. Um, (laughs) The line about better to die than tell a lie comes from my convent upbringing, and I wasn't even a Catholic. And I was sent to this convent when I was small. And the nuns used to give us this jingle better to die than tell a lie. And I took this so seriously. I wasn't a liar anyway, but I was terrified of saying anything that, you know, wasn't absolutely serious in case I went to hell in the handcart. That's what that line comes from. But I I do think that the voice does tell the truth. And I think usually with broadcasters, you can tell if they mean it or not. And I think that's so important. Have you ever told a lie, Annie Nightingale? (laughs) I think I probably... You withhold things. We can't all go around being blatantly honest and saying, hello, nice to see you, you look terrible. You can't. I mean, you can't do that. But I don't know. I really, no, I can't do it. Actually, I can't. It's so interesting because we were talking before we started recording about how much I admire you as someone who has blazed a trail for women like me who work in the media And I know from doing many celebrity interviews that sometimes you do slightly have to skirt around the truth. If you haven't genuinely loved their last film or their last album, you kind of have to gloss over that a bit. But I imagine you do that very diplomatically. Yeah, of course. You can't say, oh, hello, welcome to the studio. I hated your last album. No, of course you can't. I mean, you wouldn't do that to your best friend, you know, so... Yeah, I think that's just civilization, you know, and being diplomatic. But at the same time, that borderline be by being sycophantic, which I loathe that as well. But at the same time, you know, you might be seeing a very young person who needs encouragement. We all need reassurance. We all need validation, I think. Yeah, yeah, you've got to encourage people and be that, really. I mentioned in the introduction that you are 80 now. Mm. But do you, like me, agree that age is empowering rather than diminishing? I hope so. I mean, I'd like to point out that I was 30 before I could get anywhere near a microphone. I realised this is what I really, really wanted to do. Because of all the sexism and the doors being bolted and barred and locked for several years, 
nowadays, people, goodness, they can. They can get into broadcasting when they're 15, 16. So I was already 30 before I could enter that. If you shift that timeline to 50 years, back 15 years, I mean, it doesn't make a difference. And it's just a figure. I mean, I'm, I feel very grateful for my genetic makeup. My dad was <laughs> listening to her reggae station when he was 80. So maybe it's a family thing. I'm not trying to be down with the kids. I mean, obviously, I'd <laughs> be ridiculous. It can be embarrassing. And I don't know anyone who enjoys going, wow, it's another zero birthday. You know, the big O, the big three O, the big... I don't know whether any of us really welcome it. It has given me a lot more peace of mind. I'm still a warrior. I'll worry about anything. But I think I've acquired a bit of knowledge. Mm. And that, I'm a real learner. I want to know everything that's going on everywhere all the time. And I absorb knowledge and that doesn't go away. And I don't live in the past. Now, a lot of people will not be in my position with being able to carry on working. This is my absolutely greatest benefit that I've been allowed, if you like, to carry on working um, I, I, in broadcasting. I read somewhere that most of your friends are younger than you. Yeah. Do you think that that keeps you young in spirit? Well, it depends who they are. Yeah, there are people who get mature when they're 23. There really are. I've noticed that. So I think it's individuals. And so it doesn't quite pare down quite that way. But I'm not trying to kind of curry favour with younger people to keep myself young. It's not like that. It's people I've got things in common with. And it doesn't matter how old they are. You know, I have a friend who's my age who lives in Cape Town who's had quite a similarly you know, interesting life and we keep in touch. You know, I feel she's the same as me. We haven't changed in that sense. If you want to be old, be old. If you want to be awake and alive and get the most out of this life, then why not? And that doesn't mean having to have a career. That means watching the news to me and being interested in what's going on. Meeting young people saying, what do you think about this? I want to know. I'm just curious. I want to know. I like communicating with people. I want to find out their opinion. I don't want to lecture them. And if their experiences add to mine, that makes everyone's life more interesting. That's really, really all it is. I mentioned in the introduction some of the extraordinarily famous and talented people that you have met along the way. And I'm sure you get asked this all of the time, but if there were one of those people that really sticks in your mind or who became a formative influence on your own life, who would that be? Well, I guess the name that comes straight to mind is probably David Bowie because I met him very early on in his career. And this is when the Beatles were about to break up, really. We all know, I mean, there's a million stories about that, but I think musically they were drawing apart. And they've been together, you know, George Harrison has been the Beatles since he's 15. And they wanted to spread their wings, he wanted to work with other people. And John Lennon had his thing with going with Yoko. And they were all need, they were adults now, they're leading different lives. I want to experiment with their music. But everybody thought, who will be the next group? Who will be the next band that will take over from the Beatles? When I heard David Bowie, I thought, it's him. It's one guy. It's not a band. And I met him and he was a support act. And I took him to the pub across the road. And I said, you are the future. And I really believed it. Because he was writing his song called Space Odyssey, which was, you know, it was a time of the moon landings. And I'd grown up as a very romanticizing what life in space would be like. So that appealed to me. But it was not a love song. 
is about a guy floating in space who becomes a celebrity. I mean, it's an extraordinary concept. And that, to have that mind, to have that concept, that was not Moon and June and Love Songs. And then obviously he became much more famous with the glam rock and Ziggy Stardust and all that. But it was that real song that opened my mind to what was he was thinking, the concept that he was thinking outside of what had been really pop music. There were love songs and breakup songs. It wasn't about that. And in fact, I found the, the cutting, if you like, and he said, I wanted to write a whole album about space music. I didn't intend space on to, to be a single. Obviously, he developed new chains and we all know the rest of that. So the fact that he managed to stay ahead over the decades, always stay ahead, he never, ever fell backwards. And then even, you know, his death was a work of art. Mm. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I still speechless about that. So, yeah, that was a huge influence. Going from the sublime to the somewhat less sublime, you also met Jim Morrison, who you've described in, in the past as a bit of an ass. <laughs> yeah, I just find him incredibly pretentious. I was sort of in the middle of interviewing him and I said, what do you think about money, Jim? You know, it's a general topic. And at that time, I'd smoked cigarettes and had a lighter and he got his $100 bill out of his pocket, went to set light to it. I went, okay, God, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I just thought, mm. So that was, so I wasn't that wildly impressed with him. Not easily impressed. I love that about you. Let's start with your failures because you were generous enough to send me not three, but nine possible failures. Yeah. That I- <laughs> your favorite I have I have I that's such a singular act of generosity are you someone who's comfortable then with the idea of failure it seems to have come quite easily to you to imagine these things to send to me well I don't like the f word very much I would prefer to put it in a slightly more positive way like I didn't fail my driving test for example I didn't pass it this time yeah like (laughs) No, it's the same thing. The negativity of the word bothers me because I don't want people to feel that they have not achieved because in some tests, whatever it is, whether it's a screen test, a driving test or anything, you have not fulfilled the criteria that was necessary. That does not mean that you are a failure. Exactly, Annie. Yes, I so agree. So I try and avoid that word because I think it can be self-destructive to people. And it's like, okay, that didn't work. Let's try something else. And certainly through all the early failures were, I think, tests as a person. We're all different, every single one of us. To me, I couldn't do handstands. Well, was that a failure? Yeah, I've got weak wrists. I was terrible at gym. I hated gym. I couldn't, like, vault over the horse. I'm terrified of it. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do any of that. But I didn't say I failed at it. But, you know, there's just physical things. You find out early on that you're not going to be an athlete. You're not going to be a great ballet dancer, ice skater. And those are the kind of images that I was fed as a young girl. And then being called Nightingale, well, singing. Mm. No, I did a recording test with EMI. I pretended that it was for a newspaper feature, but obviously deep down, I was, you know, I was a big fan of Dusty Springfield. I mean, <laughs> fantastic boy. But it was very good to be able to have a go. At least you've ticked that off. At least you said, right, I'm not going to do that. But then I used to think that people, maybe everybody except me, was naturally talented. 
And therefore, they would go on to become a great painter, a great teacher, a great writer, and that they didn't actually have to do anything. They didn't have to work at it. They were just naturally talented. I could not draw the back legs of a horse, which is quite difficult, the angles that you need to draw a horse. So I was convinced I couldn't draw. I did what was then O-level art, and I had a very supportive art teacher. I said, no, no, I'm no good. I'm no good at art because I can't draw back legs of a horse. So that is where this negativity should not come in. Do you think, Annie, that women or girls are particularly prone to being knocked back by verdicts like that by by almost like internal criticism very very good point now that takes me to where i'm very very grateful to my dad i was an only child and he was one of four and none of the other four had any children either so it's only occurred to me comparatively recently that was a very unusual situation so my dad maybe treated me as a boy and a girl because he didn't have any boys you know he taught me how to row a boat because he'd done rowing and we live by the River Thames. Swimming, he taught me swimming in the sea. And now people have swimming lessons at school. And I think, well, my dad taught me how to swim. And I'm not athletic. I'm not good at all of that. But I think that opened up those possibilities of doing things which other people might have said, oh, no, you can't do that, you're a girl. Mm. And when I was about 13, me and my friend, we wanted a train set. We wanted the Hornby big set it out around the room and we spent our pocket money buying things like level crossings (laughs) and little station i don't know if we ever got the train but that was symbolic because boys got train sets not girls i like girls as well but i didn't see why i shouldn't have a train set if i wanted one so it's beginning to show something was coming through that i was not going to be a conventional female and you're talking about a time when women it was like go to school get a job maybe but the main thing get married mm. settle down have kids my parents are not happy together you know I had friends I go to their houses and I'd see their mums unhappy women living in maybe quite nice houses with quite aggressive husbands whose main thing in life was how big a car they could get status symbols and I just thought women were desperately needing the company of their daughters because they were isolated at home again it's taken me years to think back and think what conclusions I joined from that but it just didn't seem right it's society making conformity and that is what I rebelled against so you talked there about your failure to take art on as an A-level but one of your failures I passed O-level but I didn't take it A-level yeah but one of your failures out of your nine failures I have picked three is that you failed to get encouraged to do A-levels or to go to university which I think ties in with what you've been talking about so tell us what happened there well I actually got scholarship to a very academic school still going I sat in the top 10. It's called Lady Eleanor Hollis School. And once the convent thing had happened, and, and obviously my parents had thought, I better get me out of there before I become a nun, age nine. So <laughs> I set an entrance exam, which would have meant fee pay. But then they had to take a quota of, I don't know, what you call them, scholarship kids or something. Because maybe because I'd taken this exam, they let me in. But my parents said, no way they would have been able to afford the fees there. So... There I was, but I was then really, really average. I was average at any, I did not stand out in any way. I quite like English best, but 
I didn't know the sport. We played lacrosse, which is really terrifying. And as the years have gone by, I've realised that I had a good education. But at the time, I never really felt I fitted in. I became obsessed with music as a teenager and movies. And I was not considered Oxbridge material. I wasn't considered A-level material. You see, there wasn't that much expectation anywhere. Mm. Family, I'm not saying they would put me down, but whether it had been knocked out of them by World War II and they didn't have to exist. Yeah, I think now we're perhaps all realising a little bit what that life might have been like, except we're not having our houses bombed out of existence. Nobody was saying, you've got to become a professor. It wasn't expected. I think they just wanted you to have some kind of secure life and marry some bloke with loads of money. And that just didn't feel right to me. I don't want to marry a man for his money. That very rarely works out. Anyway, I was, definitely wouldn't. So they wanted security probably for me, financial security. They were not academics, so... Why would they ever think that I should go to university? I would like to have done because at that period, it would have been fantastic because the British culture that's coming out of that, which is like beyond the fringe and all those, you know, I'm not saying I was very drawn to comedy, but I had one year in college at what is now University of Westminster, but it was then a polytechnic. And that was fantastic because I didn't learn much, but I grew up a lot in central London, right opposite the BBC. I had no idea that I would ever, ever work there. No idea at all. So that year helped me grow up a bit. My parents are saying, this is journalism, of course, which in those days were very rare. And they went, well, you know, you have to have something to fall back on. I thought, no, that's the deal. You let me do this course, and then I have to prove to you that I can do this job, and I won't have to fall back on the secretarial course. It sounds like you really knew yourself at quite a young age then to have the resilience to be able to do that and plough your own furrow is really impressive. Is it? Well, <laughs> I don't know. I'm an Aries. My birthday is April the 1st. I mean, I know it's all, most people think, well, that's nonsense. Nightingales, that's our real name, family. Maybe they're encouraging more than I realised, and they didn't have any other children. But they weren't academic. I mean, the two aunts, I mean, they just had tea all the time. You go, there was lots more tea, lots of cake. I don't even know where they went to school. So there was no academic background. But it was popular culture. It was the movies. And what really one big journalist was going to see one film, which is Roman Holiday. I love everyone, that film. Yeah, but everyone says, oh, yeah, Audrey Hepburn. I go... Yeah, but that was not the inspiration for me. Mm. It was Gregory Peck being a journalist driving around Rome, you know, having an adventurous life. It was a Hollywood movie. Oh, gosh, I so relate to that because when I watched that movie, I had exactly the same thing because I also knew that I wanted to be a journalist at quite a young age. But tell really? me... Yeah, I did. It's it's funny that, isn't it? Because I didn't have any history of it in my family. Mm -hmm. I just, there was something internally that I knew. Yeah. But you, you mentioned there the legacy of World War II on your parents' generation and indeed your generation. And you've talked yeah. a bit about your dad, but what was your yeah. mother like? She was the fifth out of six children. She thought she was a baby. So apparently when she was born, she got all the fuss made out of her from her four sisters and brothers. And then another one came along, a boy. I mean, she admitted it. She said that kind of put her nose out of joint. She wasn't the baby anymore. And she was not happy with my dad. She said, I'm very disappointed in your father. 
because he was not a natural businessman. He had inherited a wallpaper business from his father, who I think was a very dynamic one, but he died when I was very small, so I don't really know, but who runs Sanderson's. And dad was expected to take over the family business, which is something else I feel really strongly about. People should not have to do that. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a shop. You know, John Smith and son. Why should John Smith's son have to run the shop if he's not cut out for it? My dad was not a businessman. He was an artisan. He was a very sensitive man, very nice person. It was wrong. And what can you say now? Well, and then my mother died quite young, and he spent, you know, another 30 years on his own. I actually said to him once, She's never think, because I mean, a lot of women find me quite attractive. And I said, did you not feel that you should have somebody else in your life? And he said, I didn't want to upset you. And I thought, oh, yeah. yeah. It's a very sensitive man. So I miss him very much. He was a role model for me about, I hope, being a decent person. And what a wonderful thing that has been to be inspired by. So I've probably gone off the subject, but. No, but never. I, yeah, that was I, beautiful. There was a north-south divide, not in a kind of conventional way. So the Nightingales came from Lancashire, and my mother came from Surrey, which everyone thinks more posh. But her sisters in law, because their family had grown up in France, so they spoke French in front of her, which she couldn't speak, and she used to think that was very rude. And I agree. So she felt slighted. So there's a sort of opposite north-south divide going on there socially. I didn't see the ideal, lovely family life as being something that I'd witnessed. Mm. I'd seen women being not happy, really, and the dads being under huge pressure to bring home the the bacon and be the breadwinner, and that these people were divided in half, and that seemed to me so wrong. You know, what if you were a dad who actually liked cooking and you wanted and you're better at that, and maybe, you know, the mum would have been the better breadwinner, and that or appalling life that that generation, and no doubt beforehand, and up until comparatively recently, and probably still going on, that injustice really gets to me. You know, putting people in boxes, we're all different, all of us. Yeah, it strikes me reading about you in, in preparation for this interview that the life that you have lived has been a direct counterbalance to your upbringing in a way, because... Yeah. You're very rare amongst women in the public eye in that there isn't very much out there about your personal life, about your life as a mother, about who you were married to and all of that. And I salute you for that. And I wonder whether that was a conscious decision on your part to keep the two separate, even though you were working and, you know, rushing home to Brighton to raise your daughter, but you didn't ever talk about it. No, I have a son and a daughter and they did not opt to share a life in public with me and that's where we leave it and we're happy with that and I'm happy with that Mm. so that's it so your failure I put that in quotation marks to do a levels or to go to university is that something that you regret or do you think that it has taught you something important well I just don't believe in regrets we can't have them you can't go back Mm. you can't go back so what's the point I'm not going to breathe about it there's lots of other things one would like to have done, all of us. Or, oh, yeah, maybe I should have done that. My dad used to go on about, I wish I hadn't sold that car. <laughs> dad, it would have rusted, you know. That'd be ridiculous. So I try to eliminate regrets. We've all made mistakes, lots of mistakes, and you have to learn from them. Maybe I wouldn't have enjoyed university. I had that year at Polytechnic Centre London. It was a very good year for me. And maybe that was quite enough. 
you can't go back. You are the result of your experiences, good and bad. Mm. So accept it, move on, adapt to survive. Love it. Love it. Now, after Polytechnic, you did become a print journalist. And I realise I'm fast forwarding quite a few years here because your second failure is your failure to become a DJ for three years when Radio One started. So the big one. Yeah, yeah, it is the big one. And that's why I wanted to do it seconds. We had most time to talk about it because it was literally because you were a woman, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, they were quite open about it. And the thing is, I did feel qualified by then because I'd been writing about music for years and I'd been fronting TV shows. So I felt, well, it's not as if I'm saying, oh, I'd like to be a DJ, you know, I'd like to be a movie star with no experience. I had enough qualification. So I was absolutely gobsmacked. So the background to this is we had these pirate radio stations, Radio Caroline, Radio London, that were absolutely fantastic. They made a lot of music of that period, the 60s, really happened in the UK. They brought and that and Ready Steady Go, the TV shows that brought us black music and Motown and fabulous excitement, amazing. The BBC were not, not part of that. Then the pirates got closed down because there were literally ships out at sea in international waters, which I thought was terribly exciting and dangerous and wonderful. And then closed down, and the deal was with the government, said to the BBC, right, you now run this pop station for the kids. And so they took on most of the ex-pirates, who became the first wave of DJs there. And one of the things they said to me when I went, oh, this is it. I'd seen the pirates out of sea, and I thought, oh, God, I'd love to do that. But I couldn't imagine doing that, swimming out to sea. And So when they'd gone on dry land, I thought, well, this is the opportunity. So... I couldn't see what the big problem would be. And then they actually said, well, it's because you're a woman. (laughs) What's that got to do with it? And they said, this job is a husband substitute. Mm. (laughs) I I could not believe it. And that's it in a nutshell. I've gone boys to death for hours. I mean... To say that to you as well, because you were out there hustling, working, you knew that women like you existed and you weren't listening to the radio for a husband substitute. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, Mm. You know, what was coming up was like Cosmopolitan magazine, feminism was coming in. There was a lot of, eventually there was a lot of pressure and I was writing stuff and she, you know, I was saying, I thought it was very wrong. And I used to say to them, look, I may be absolutely no good at this at all. I absolutely appreciate this please, can I just have a go? And just let me have a go. If I'm no good, I'll shut up and go away forever, I promise. And that that was the thing, because I could not understand why gender had anything to do with it. That was the point. It had not affected me in writing for magazines and newspapers and doing TV. What was the thing about radio that you had to be a bloke? I yeah. not understand it. So after they said that to you, what did you do? I wouldn't accept it. I wouldn't accept it. And I kept going on. And I think you know, the, the mood was changing. I think they then realised that they would have to take on maybe one tokenistic just to you know, keep the pressure off. And because, I know this is quite important, I say to everybody, if there's an area that you want to work in, circle it, keep circling it. It's not a matter of don't be in the right place at the right time. You might have to be in the right place for a long time. Before that opportunity happens, a lot of other female DJs have, have happened on radio because somebody went on holiday, somebody was ill, and they go, oh, my God, who do we know? 
Now, if you have some experiences and you've gone in starting off making the tea or learning how to edit stuff, and you're the one that comes to mind. And that, I think, applies to anybody that wants to achieve something that is difficult to get into. Just keep on that periphery of what you want to do. I mean, I was very fortunate because I was a journalist, but I didn't really think I was that good a journalist. I didn't have much confidence. I didn't think I could write very well. But once I got in front of a microphone, that felt right. That thought, yeah, this is what I really want to do. Mm. And so I probably did persist. But I mean, I think I've actually got to the point I've almost given up thinking, oh, it's never going to happen. But because of this increasing public pressure, if you like, they had to take somebody on. So, you know, you'd be the one to try it. If I'm no good, I'm no... And then the weirdest thing of all is that I thought I'd last a year, but they extended the contract. I was the only female there for 12 years. I still can't understand that. And I began to think, well, maybe <laughs> nobody else wants to do this. I'm a freak. And because yeah, they used to say to me, why would a woman want to be a DJ? <laughs> because it's the best job in the world. <laughs> I could see that, you know. Why they didn't get that I couldn't see that. I think it's a very male thing. It's very techie. Mm. Most of the guys who set up radio on, have been XRF. So it was a techie thing rather than a creative necessarily thing. Yeah. John Peel, obviously, that was, you know, without John Peel, it would never, ever have happened. I might not have wanted to join that kind of boys gang. So there was somebody out there who was playing wonderful, fascinating music. So obviously, it was a great inspiration to all of us. On your first day at Radio 1, were you intimidated by the nature of the old boys club? Did you feel that you had to prove you were twice as good as the next person? Uh, for years. Mm. Not the first night. First night, first show, I completely blew it. I stopped the record that was actually playing by mistake. So it was a disaster. And I thought, well, that's it. They gave me a chance and I blew it. You know, that kind of terrible complex about making mistakes went on for years. I didn't have a problem with talking. <laughs> she <got laughs> But it was a technical, not making technical mistakes. And they regarded that as being very important. I think more than, certainly a daytime guide. And then you began to notice that there were two real differences in Radio 1. It was the daytime people who are, and still, and it's a hell of a job. You've got to be an entertainer and have a fabulous, massive audience. In the evening, you could play what you really wanted. Now, the only reason I wanted to be on radio was to play the music that I love. I did not do it to become famous. I didn't want to be a celebrity. I wanted a medium because I thought it's so simple. I've heard this piece of music. I could play it to you down the phone, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. and say, what do you think? Do you think, am I mad? Is this great? That and it has not changed. That was my thing. So they didn't really know what to do with me because, you know, I was not a fast, slick, jock DJ. I didn't fit that. And it wasn't actually until years in when I started to do this show on a Sunday where I found this dream audience and I could do exactly as I'm saying to you, but play this track and say, what do you think of this? And they would respond and go, absolutely, it's terrible. What are you talking about? But we had that rapport. And that mm. became a Sunday night request show, which lasted, well, it was in two goes. It's Sunday afternoon, and then the real rich period was 82 to 94. And that started as a three-month filler, and that went on for 12 years. And I adore those people to this day because we played the most bizarre. I kept thinking they'll take it off. They'll take it. It's too weird, too weird. 
and they didn't. And you know, they sent me a list of records, and I think, God, oh, that's good. 12 tunes, I could play all of them in one show. But there might be one I didn't know. And that one would actually be a real find because that person's taste was really good. So we were both learning and we shared it. It was like their show. And that's a whole generation. Here you are 50 years later, yeah, still on Radio 1. But and, there's I- a guy, and there's a guy who has collected a lot of those shoots from that period and put them on a Spotify list, the quirkiness of it that mm. summed up that period. But I found those people. I found the person at the end of the phone, if you like. I kind of started different audiences. It's 7 o'clock on Sunday. They were at school or college. They're doing their homework they should have done on Friday. And they had probably a pen in their hand. They could write down, you know, it's pre-internet, an email. So they had to write down what they wanted to hear. And they do a drawing around it. And you go, you know, I hope you're not doing A-level art. You know, that rapport grew with them. Yeah. And that is absolutely a beautiful thing for me in my life. You say rightly that it took 12 years for the next woman to come along. And that was Janice Long. And then... Many years after that, it was the generation that I grew up with. It was people like Sarah Cox, Lauren Laverne, who I know you were interviewed by recently for Desert Island Discs. And now there's like a bevy of strong women on the radio. Great. It's so good. Yeah. It is great. And it's great for the listener to have so much more diversity. But how else has your job changed in that time, either negatively or positively? Are there some things that you miss and other things that you love and... How's it changed? Obviously, it's evolving all the time. Somebody said to me, I was like, shall I send you a record? I went, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> For years, you know, it's all, it's all downloads. It's all technology. And I've embraced the technology. And it's very good that Radio 1 did when it did because that huge technological digital revolution, Radio 1 could have got completely wiped out by that. And they were really ahead of the game in, what, early 90s, I suppose, which is a very rich period. And I loved that period, even though I was not of their generation, but they let me in. They need to be ahead of the game. And we had to all learn everything new. In a funny way, I wasn't so intimidated because we had all had to learn at the same time. Whereas in the beginning, all the prior DJs, they all knew everything technically before I got anywhere near having that opportunity. Now we all had to learn from page one. And so it's less intimidating when that big revolution happened. Things are much easier now. You don't have the fear of playing the wrong track with all the swearing in it that's going to get you taken off air. It's technically much easier. It sounds better. It's not clunky like it used to be. You, you, as a listener, and I as a listener, expect that. The production qualities are way, way about, you know, wonderful. Sometimes people send me old programs that they found on Mixed Cloud or whatever, and you just think, oh, my goodness, oh, dear, all that jingle. Oh. Yeah, but that was them. And what has amazed me, that radio, audio, has survived. It survived TV. It survived MTV. It survived video it survived the internet all these platforms why has it survived because i think people still need that human voice between the music you can put on endless playlists with no human voice and it's been proved that in times of crisis it communicates it connects us together and particularly now when people can't be close to each other it's probably doing very well because it's a voice out there but not someone you know, but you think you do know them. Do you hang out with the other Radio 1 presenters, with, with Grimmy? Nobody, and... nobody has time. <laughs> nobody ever had time. No, because, you know, you get your studio slot 
booked in advance. If you're not out of your studio on time, they're banging on the door because they mm. need the studio. And all the DJs said, it's not, it never was that kind of culture. So you never knew what they did the rest of the time. Everybody else had other jobs and they were doing photo shoots or they were doing TV shows or writing. It was never a job that you just did that and you went in the office at nine in the morning, you stayed all day and all night. It was not like that. And we'd be separated by specialists. Not now, not anymore, but at one time there'd be specialists on one floor and daytime on another. And so you'd probably get to know the specialist people a bit more. I did know, I mean, John Peel came out to my house once to go to a football match in Brighton because he was a Liverpool fan. And I do say that it's funeral. Oh, so Annie. there are a few, but mostly not by design, but simply because they're very busy people. And it's not that kind of, it never was. They were DJing, you know, they'd be DJing around the world. Come in, do the show, off. And, you know, thank you, we'll have a studio, please. So there's very little. I've got, you know, people I'm very fond of, like Bobby Frickson, who I've known over the years, who's now a you know, big star on the Asian Network. Sarah Cox is one of the loveliest people on this earth. I don't think we've ever hung out anywhere. I don't think ever. Maybe once. It just doesn't happen. What do you think those nuns at your convent school would make of you now? (laughs) Probably gather their children around them and keep me as far away as possible. I just think they would think I would be a very bad influence. Were you naughty at school? Not really. Not desperately. I think we get... Yeah, you know, the old detention or something, but I wasn't really a rebel at school. I was a rebel out of school. So in French class, they said, is it true you went to the cinema three times last week? And that was considered very bad. So I was considered flighty. That's another reason why I probably didn't do A-levels or university because I was now in this sort of rave culture. I was caught up in the music thing and that was not <laughs> didn't go down very well with the very seriously academic people. And fair enough, that was their thing. This is mine. I think that's such a good example, though, of something that was once dismissed at school or by authority figures as flightiness or a hobby or rebellion can actually turn into your passion and your livelihood. And I think that's such a good thing for people listening to realise. I hope so. But I mean, the thing is, where do you draw the line? This whole thing about get a safe job, something to fall back on. Yeah, we're facing this terrifying recession at the moment. What do you advise young people to do to get through the next six years? I'm desperately worried for them. If it's risk-taking, I don't know whether that's a good thing. But, you know, if you invent TikTok, that's done pretty well. I like to say to people, follow your dream. Is that good advice? Because if you're a young boy, you want to be a footballer, and you may not actually be good enough. And you could spend a lot of your youth practising football and never, ever getting anywhere. And that might be then very bad advice. You've got to have some kind of backup, maybe. Exactly. exactly. I think follow your dream and have a backup plan. And also realise that the dream you think you want might not necessarily be the right dream for you. Because certainly in my life, I've been going, you know, focused on one area. And then another opportunity has come along that I'd never anticipated. And that's where the rich stuff sometimes lies. Exactly, I couldn't put it better. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I say to people, do what you feel now. You don't know. There's a job out there that doesn't even exist that mm. we don't even know about. That is exciting future. Be open-minded, but give yourself as much opportunity to be able to take that, if it happens to you, take that opportunity. So if something comes along and see it as an opportunity, 
I never imagined I'd be on the radio. I never imagined I'd be on TV at all. But it's sort of being open to opportunity. You can't always take them up. You know, nobody can. And you think, oh, missed opportunity. You're all gone, bruised about it for the rest of your life. There's no point doing that. Just think, well, I couldn't do that. And then I used to think, this is an Eminem song, so one chance, one opportunity. But that's great if you're able to grasp it, but you can't always, for all kinds of reasons. But then maybe you get another go. Exactly. And maybe, you know, you start off, you're a boy, you want to be a footballer, and it turns out that you can't get a trial for Leicester or Leeds or England. But what if you become Alex Ferguson, a huge figure, incredibly influential all over the world, as a manager? But when you're a little boy of seven, you don't want to be the manager. You want to be number seven and who is scoring the gold. So there's all that periphery that you don't even know about that actually might be incredibly much more rewarding. I'm using football as an analogy because there's so many. Right now, the hero of the day will be the person who finds a vaccine for COVID. And I imagine there may be a lot of young people thinking, well, I'm going to do physics because I want to help the world. You don't know what these influences that are happening all around us are. And because the internet has changed everything and young people can see the world, it opens up the way to see what's going on. You can see about the protests in Hong Kong. You can see what's going on. We should not live in a closed off world anymore and see those opportunities. I just want everyone to feel fulfilled. It may not make you a lot of money. Just give people the opportunity to find fulfillment. And that is my great dream for everyone. Oh, Annie, you are so speaking my language. I love it. If I can guide you on to the third of your failures, it made me laugh, this one, because it's a failure of discipline over money. (laughs) And and you mentioned that you failed economics at what was then O-level stage. But tell me more about your lack of discipline over money. Is that something you still have? I'm much better than I used to be. I'm very fatalistic, which is absolutely stupid. You know, say, so, oh, fate will take over everything. Fate, destiny, you know, as yeah. if destiny is going to, you know, make sure that you have a wonderful life and, you know, you're financially comfortable and you're beautiful and you've got, you know, a wonderful home and family. That's absolute bollocks. <laughs> you make your life. You've got to make your own life is tough and you've got to make your opportunities. And I've never been so interested in money for its own sake. But what I've realised that you need a certain amount to create freedom, to then create fulfilment. If you've had no education, all these children at the moment who've been off school, living in eight children in one family with one laptop between them, if they're lucky, what kind of opportunities are those children going to have? What chances are they going to have to fulfil their dream? That's just what kind of really gets me. It's not a level playing field. I was very fortunate that I was able to go to a very good school and it took me a long time to appreciate it, really. But I do now. But I never had a lot of money. It was not a very, very important thing in my life. That is why it's the only subject I failed. I took, I think, altogether nine, there was the only one I failed. I thought it was quite significant that it should have been economics. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't interested in it, per Mm. se. I was interested in what it could do where... You know, it could pay for you to go on a plane somewhere and have experiences. I wasn't good with money for a long, long time. I have learned I'm much, much better now. Do you have a pension? No. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> 
I'm so relieved to hear that because I think that a lot of people in the creative arts just feel like they'll keep on working forever. Well, the thing is, I probably couldn't afford to have one and I'm a freelance. Mm. And then you hear awful stories about people who put money into their pension thing and then somebody's stolen it or something. That would be the most terrible betrayal to me. I mean, the R word, and I don't mean that in the COVID sense, but the R word as in R-E-T-I-R-E, retire. Yeah. No, thank you. (laughs) I'll do anything to keep working because I love it and I love people and I want the mental stimulus of it. I'm probably a workaholic now, which is great. That's what I want to do. And what do you spend your money on for fun? I don't know. Nothing at the moment. What about clothes and glasses? You've got such a good sense of style. (laughs) Well, one pair of sunglasses you might refer to were 18 euros at an airport in Italy (laughs) about five years ago. I've never, ever been able to find anything as good as that. I'm terrified of losing them because I can't replace them. I mean, you know, he's spent 200 quid. Yeah, I like expensive sunglasses, but they're still the best. I just think they enhance, it's a bit of enhancement, which is mm. a bad thing, you know. We should all make an effort to be at least pleasant to look at. I don't mean glamorous and dull up to the nines, but you're the only person that doesn't have to look at you. Yeah. Well, I'm at home, I don't look in the mirror. If you work in the office or something, somebody's sitting opposite you, they've got to look at you. Well, make it as pleasant experience as possible. Not showing off and go look at all my incredibly expensive clothes. Be considerate about other people. You're a true creative, Annie Nightingale. May you never lose your 18 euro sunglasses and may you never retire. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for coming on How to Fail. Oh, I've, I've so enjoyed it. This is what I love is connecting with people. This is like a radio show to me, but you're there at the other end. And you can talk back to me. I feel exactly the same, Annie. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Elizabeth. Best of luck with everything you do and never give in, never take no for an answer. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.